have your Bibles, just turn to the book of Revelation, the 10th chapter. Revelation chapter 10. John the Apostle is writing the vision and the revelation that God gave him. And we'll begin reading at the first verse. It's only 11 verses in this chapter, so uh, we'll go through the whole thing. Revelation chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we pause now to go through this section of your word, we pray that you would give us understanding. And Father, we admit it's a difficult passage where we desire to know what it is you're saying to us through the symbols and signs that you communicated this revelation to your servant John by. And we pray that you would open our understanding, help us to discern all things and to compare Scripture with Scripture. And we pray that you would bless us and open your word. Lord, even as we read in the 119th Psalm, Lord, uh, open your word to us and let us behold wondrous things out of your law. So we pray, Lord God, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the Holy Scriptures. And we pray, Lord God, that you would be pleased through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the work of your Spirit in our hearts and minds graciously, Lord, to open your word to us so that we can really hear your voice and understand your will. We thank you, Lord, that all scripture is given by your inspiration and is profitable for our benefit in every aspect. 
And so we thank you for this section of your word, and we pray you bless us now. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Praise God. All right, so we have this 10th chapter. John, as you know, in the division right before this, you know, we've seen the, the uh, seals being opened. We got up to the sixth seal. And generally, historically, it looks like dark times came upon the earth. That's what uh, the Lord was telling John was going to happen, that there was going to be um, some pretty horrible stuff. If you remember, the, the bottomless pit was opened, and locusts came out and swarmed over the earth, and they tortured men for five months, it says, which is, uh, if you consider from Ezekiel chapter 4, the idea that each day represents a year, then it's 150 years, and um, others say, well, it could be just five months, but if it's 150 years and the symbolism, and John describes the locusts, they look like warriors wearing turbans, going forth on horses and conquering and torturing men, and some have said, well, this could be a reference to the rise and spread of Islam and from the taking of uh, Mecca or Medina, actually, up until the Muslims were stopped at the Battle of Tours, it was exactly 150 years. And so some have said that that may be a reference to those days. The second part we saw when the next seal was opened that the four kings that were by the river Euphrates were let loose. And their armies went forth. Some have said that could be a reference perhaps to the second wave of the Islamic onslaught that wiped out about one-third of all of the Christian uh, witness in the Middle East, in Persia, and in uh, North Africa, which was pretty solidly Christian, although they had lapsed into idolatry. And they were swept away and brought under the thraldom slavery of Islam. But as we saw at the end of chapter 9, as we're told in verse 18, by these three plagues, uh, that is the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, the the hellish teachings, and perhaps even the uh, swords and cannons and all the things that came with that, but definitely the doctrine is what God's word is concerned with because that's more deadly than any sword. Um, The fire and the smoke and the brimstone, it says, Uh, By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. So the people that came under the sway of Islam, if that is what this is referring to, um, the ones, if they wanted to stay alive, they generally had to renounce their Christian faith. You know, it's interesting. What we don't realize is that most of the ancestors of people in Egypt and other in Libya and other parts of Africa, North Africa and in Persia, for the most part, they were professing Christian nations at the time Islam conquered them. Uh, but then we read in verse 19, sadly, uh, well, actually, the uh, 19 just talks about the, uh, the horses and the wars. It says, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, their doctrine and the afterwards, you might say. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, we're told in verse 20 and 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. You know, it's pretty clearly if you're reading your Bible that you see the judgment of God that fell on the professing church because of its being given over to idolatry. If you're familiar with the Second Council of Nicaea, where idolatry was legitimized supposedly through conciliar decree, 
Um, they continued on making images and idols, setting them up in churches, and God says we're not to do that. And he brought judgment on them. But they repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or of their sorceries or of their sexual immorality or of their thefts. So we see in these two verses that there was no repentance from those judgments, that it takes more than just God's judgments to bring men to repentance. It takes his grace. We saw that what came out of the mouths of the uh, horsemen was fire and smoke and brimstone with their hellish teachings, um, whether it's Islam or uh, just a, a false view of, of the, the gospel. In Rome, terrorizing people with the threat of damnation if they don't participate in the sacraments properly or if they don't um, have last rites, which is one of their sacraments, and the various things. Or if they're not in submission to the Pope, they'll lose their soul and troubling men's consciences. And so, but here the difference was in this this, uh, sixth seal was that they weren't just troubling men, men were dying as a result of it. But we see that it didn't bring repentance. The, uh, if, it, if the men that are being referred there are the men of the world, well, they never seem to repent, do they, unless God gives them grace. Those who profess to be Christians, Paul warned in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and look at this before we go into chapter 10, kind of get an idea of some things. Um, Paul warned Timothy and said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So generally when we read this, I've mentioned before, we think, oh, those heathen are going to be so bad toward the last days. That's what Paul is saying, in the last days, perilous times. Well, wow, the world is going to be so bad. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church, the visible church. Know what he says at the end, in verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. They have the form, they have the governmental structures, they have the institutional forms, but the Bible tells us, that when Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What are they denying? The power of God. They're de- they deny the gospel. What do we see in these apostate denominations, whether Rome or apostate Protestantism or whatever form it takes with its idolatry and false teachings, and notice the next verse we read in Revelation had to do with the lives that flow out of those false teachings and idolatry, and they were filled with murder and fornication and poisoning or sorceries, all types of horrible things, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So this this description of this, this horrible condition of men in a fallen state, you know, covenant breakers, just um, not to be trusted, fierce. So they have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And from such people turn away. 
So he says, don't have fellowship with people that have denied the gospel, even if they claim to be Christians. And we see this today with all, you know, homosexual ordination, same-sex marriage, all these vile things. Like, where did this come from? Read Revelation. The pit was opened. The locusts came out and spread their false teachings and their uh, torturing of, of men. It came from hell, from the, the powers of hell that let loose on the earth. But God is sovereign. That's what chapter 10 tells us about we're going to learn some wonderful things. So, you know, Revelation has to do with the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, it belongs to Him, and it is about Him, and it is from Him to us. So we can learn some things. We see in this, as, the, as if you've read through Revelation before, and I encourage you to do that, you see this battle between good and evil coming forth. We see as the seals are broken, uh, we see the judgments of God coming, but we see that God permits evil to go forth in the world as judgments on wicked men. And the Bible tells us judgment must begin at the house of God. And as Peter says, if it begins with us, uh, where are the unbelievers going to stand? So God does judge sin. So we come we, to see in Revelation this battle. We're going to see in a little while this uh, woman clothed in scarlet sitting on a seven-headed beast and uh, drunk with the blood of the saints, you know, dressed in, in scarlet colors and um, they talk about a city that's set in opposition to God that sits upon seven hills. And it's like if you can't figure out what city that is historically, uh, it's Rome. Rome is known for sitting on seven hills. It was the head of the Roman Empire when this book was written. So we see this battle. Not just, you know, we don't fight against people. I've got friends that live in Rome, okay? So uh, we're not against Romans. We're against the, what has grown up in this monstrous monstrosity, this false church uh, that the church you can say it is indeed the kingdom of Antichrist in so many ways but we see this great conflict and not just Rome but any apostasy, any wickedness whether it's law, Islam or the false religions of men out there and it grows and at times it seems to prevail but then we see the grace of God and we see the Lord Jesus Christ come as with Israel of old and rescues his people when they cry out to him so now we come to chapter 10, and we, chapter 10, you might say, sets the stage for the dark days that are going to be recorded and prophesied of in the chapters ahead. So in chapter 10, verse 1, John writes this, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now many believe that this is a symbolic representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some have said, well, he's not an angel, he's the Lord of the angels. In the Old Testament, there's this one very unique figure that appears time and time again, excuse me, and he is called the Angel of the Lord, Melach Adonai, the Angel of the Lord, and he comes and he speaks to Israel, he wrestled with Jacob uh, before Jacob crossed the river, uh, Jacob left that night, remember when Jacob was left alone and there came a man, he wrestled with him and he said, I won't, Jacob said, uh, when the man said, let go of me, the sun's coming up, he said, I won't let go of you unless you bless me. So he, he blessed him. He said, your name will be called no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you have wrestled with God. And when Jacob, you know, he, the angel touched his hip and uh, he came limping the next morning uh, to rejoin his family, and he named the place Peniel. Well, Peniel in Hebrew means face, or face of. Peniel, and then El is God. Jacob knew who he'd wrestled with. And it actually says in the prophets that he had wrestled with God. You remember when the Lord appeared to Abraham, there were three men that came, and one was the Lord himself, and actually calls him Jehovah. 
In Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, the promise was that the messenger of the covenant, and the word messenger is just an English translation of that same Hebrew word, Malach, uh, the messenger of the covenant, the angel of the covenant, is going to suddenly come into his temple, as the Lord did both at his circumcision when he was an infant, and then later as he began his ministry when he went and cleaned it out. So the Lord was pleased to appear in the form of the angel of the Lord. So it's not contrary to scripture to say this could be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can down if we see the description it becomes more and more clear. Uh, he was clothed with a cloud. The Bible tells us that God dwells in a cloud. Uh, and a rainbow was on his head. It says very beautiful. Uh, he's clothed with a rainbow. That was a sign of the covenant that God made with Noah that he would not destroy the earth again with a flood. So it's a sign of God's grace. So he's clothed with a uh, uh, a cloud and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun. Well, John had seen that once before in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's recorded that when John and James and Peter, or, excuse me, Peter, James, and John, get it in the right order, uh, were there with the Lord. That's when Moses and Elijah appeared, and they spoke to the Lord Jesus, and his, his face changed. He said, the glory of God appeared. They saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, and in Matthew writes, his face shone as the sun. So John had seen this once before, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Pillars speak of stability. Uh, fire means that he had gone through hell for us. But his feet were like pillars of fire, so that is he's stable and fervent. In chapter 11, when this angel is speaking to John, again, he says, uh, and I have to jump there to kind of point out what I'm saying. He says, John says, Then I was given to read like a measure nut, and the angel stood, that is this angel who had stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship therein. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. All right, we'll get into that next time we get into chapter 11. But then note what the angel says. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in the sackcloth. So we'll get into what all that means in a future date. But this angel speaks clearly as God. I will give power to my two witnesses. Those witnesses were preaching Christ. So to say that this is perhaps a picture or a symbol of Christ coming in power, I don't think is, is incorrect or stretched. Uh, and then John says he saw this, and he saw this this one come, this messenger. And keep in mind, the Greek word for angel is angelos. Clearly, that's where we get it in English. But it means in the Greek language, messenger. The same as melach in Hebrew means angel or messenger in the Old Testament. So it would be just as correct to translate this and say, I saw another mighty messenger coming down from heaven. The reason why I say this is because in Hebrews it talks about that Christ didn't take on the nature of angels during his incarnation. Uh, but this isn't necessarily uh, contrary to that. It's not con contrary to that. There's no contradiction here. So he sees this one come who is glorious and gracious in his appearing and yet mighty. And that's how he describes him. A strong angel in the Greek. He had a little book open in his hand. And the word can mean a little scroll. And it's open in his hand. Well, who was opening a scroll not too long ago in chapter 5? It was Jesus. So here he comes, and it's a small book. 
Some have said because a lot of it had already been fulfilled in the first nine chapters here that we read of. But he comes and he has this little book in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. That's pretty important because later on, in a short while, John in chapter 13 is going to see a pretty strange sight. Revelation 13, you might as well turn there and take a quick look. Chapter 13, John, as he's giving his, his testimony of what he saw, he says in verse 1 of chapter 13, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head and on his head a blasphemous name. So he sees something says something really ugly comes up from the sea. Now the sea is often referred to, and we'll find when we get to that point, uh, as the multitude of the nations, the people, the tumult of the of the Gentiles. In verse 11 we see, of chapter 13, he says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. Yeah, he looked like he belonged to Jesus and spoke like a dragon. Reformers to the man, pretty much, when they talked about that verse, that's the Pope. Looks like a lamb, all dressed in white, claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth. But when he speaks, sounds like the devil himself, claiming that he's the head of everything, and you have to obey him, etc. But the point is, the first one comes out of the sea, the second one comes out of the earth. That's pretty scary stuff. Well, look where this angel stands, this messenger. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He's sovereign. He's in control. Long before the enemy rises up, God has already established the dominion of Christ. And there's a reason for him telling us this, because we see what comes out of the sea in the future is scary. What comes out of the earth is scary. Those two beasts, we're going to deal with them in a few, few weeks, Lord willing. But Christ has already set his foot on it. Remember what God said? Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. God told Israel that the time would come when they would put their feet on the necks of their enemies. They would uh, basically show that they had conquered them. Remember the seed of the woman? It said that the serpent would bruise his heel, but he was going to crush the head of the serpent. He was going to put his foot down. And Paul told the Roman church uh, in the book of Romans, when it was a good church, he told them in chapter 16 that God was going to soon crush Satan under their feet. So we see this one as we're... Chapter 10 is kind of a, a little bit of a pause in one sense. We're not seeing horrible things come out of the bottomless pit. We're not seeing judgments falling everywhere. But we are seeing indeed the, uh, an interlude and God's people being prepared for what was to come. So he sets his foot on the sea and on the land and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. That's loud. Okay, I did a little research on it. Okay, I've heard things like, all right, what is the, uh, how loud is a, is a lion's roar? Well, I looked it up and it, what I found was it's 114 decibels at a distance of one meter. It's like, okay, so what's 114 decibels? Well, a jet airplane at takeoff is 100 decibels. A Boeing 737 or a DC-9 and a, a motorcycle with a bad muffler would be about 90 decibels, okay, uh, of loudness. 
it's one of the loudest sounds in nature. When a lion roars, they say it can be heard distinctly, easily five miles away, depending on the terrain, of course. So when he cries out, no, he doesn't say it was, he says it's like, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. So this word goes out. It goes out powerfully. Some have said that's symbolic of Christ sending forth his word and the preaching of the gospel powerfully. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So something happened. John heard there were seven different thunders, and he just uttered their voices. And he was getting ready to write what they had said. So it wasn't just that he heard thunder noises. He actually heard intelligent or intelligible words. And as he says, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven, from God, saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. In other words, there's a few things about the future that people don't need to know about. You know, if you're like me, it's like, I wonder what they said. Well, they're sealed up. You know, Deuteronomy 29.29, one of my favorite verses, because it really helps a lot. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29.29. We don't know everything. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we might do or observe all the words of this law. So what we have in Scripture that God has given to us is so that we can know what to do to worship Him, to serve Him. Everything necessary for life and godliness is revealed in Scripture. Some things God reserves to Himself. And so what the seven thunders uttered, we're not told. Now some have said, possibly what the seven thunders uttered is what the seven bowls of judgment were a little later in the book. But it doesn't, the Scripture itself doesn't say that. So whatever it was, John was just told, don't write this. So God reserves some things to himself. So the seven thunders uttered, John is told, don't write them. So he doesn't. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his right hand, excuse me, his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, that is God Almighty, the Father, who created uh, heaven and the things that are in it. Now this angel, if it is Christ, then he is God the Son, but he swears by the Father, if it's Christ doing this, the one who created the heaven and everything in them, the earth and everything, all the things that are in it, and the sea and all the things that are in it. In other words, the entire creation. So what he's saying here doesn't just affect a small group of people. What he's saying affects everything and everybody in the entire creation, and that is that there should be delay no longer. Now, the old King James says that there should be time no longer, and some people have misunderstood that. So, oh, see, time ceases to exist. That's not what that means. It means exactly what the New King James uh, says, that there be no more delay. That is, that when we say the time is done, that doesn't mean there's no more time. It means that the time that was given has now expired. And then John tells us, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which is going to happen in the next chapter, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound... The mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the, uh, so, so he says, okay, when this seventh angel sounds, this, the mystery of God is going to be wrapped up. So what is the mystery of God? Well, in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, at verse 3, Paul wrote and said, beginning there, he said, how that by revelation he, that is God, made known unto me the mystery of 
as I wrote afore in a few words, which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto, uh, unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So this, that's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. So the mystery, I believe, that Revelation is referring to is the calling in of the Gentile nations to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the gospel goes out. And we see the way this book ends, or this chapter ends, I should say. It, it confirms that. And so this message that he gives, or that he brings out, is that the, the time is fulfilled. The fullness of the Gentiles have come in. It's now time for things to be wrapped up, you might say. God's getting ready to uh, judge the world for Christ to return in glory and receive his people unto himself. The mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. And as Paul said, uh, as he revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Same thing, it's almost a parallel passage. So he sees this, and this angel gives this, this declaration that the time is now fulfilled. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Some have said, is this the book we saw in chapter 5, or is this a reference to the gospel? And Actually, it could be translated as a little scroll, a small scroll in his hand. So he goes up to the angel or messenger and says to him, Give me the little book. He's not impolite. He asked for it. And he said to me, Take and eat it. Literally, devour it. Take and devour this. By the way, if you want to eat a book, you know how you do it? You don't start chewing on it. You read it. You ingest it. How do you get a book inside of you? By your memory. All right? Uh, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. So this is a symbol, a picture in John's to ask for the angel. And the angel says, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. It's going to be a glory and a joy to proclaim the truth of God in your mouth. But as you meditate and consider the judgments of God and the wrath of God poured out on wicked men, and not just that, but the tribulation that God's own saints will endure in this world, their sufferings, their martyrdoms, their blood being shed unjustly, all the things that are coming on this world, it's going to be bitter in your stomach. And so John says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. That's the symbolism there. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. So John experienced exactly what he was told was going to happen. Uh, and his stomach became bitter. And he, that is the angel, said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. It could also be rendered too many peoples, uh, and too many uh, peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. God has things to say to the people in the world, and that is that they need to repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at this, we see John obeyed what he was told. You know, we look at, well, what's the practical applications of this? Well, the first and foremost one uh, and, uh, is that long prior to the rise of the of wicked things, of the beasts from the sea and from the land, Christ had established his dominion over every location in heaven and on earth. 
In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said when he came and spoke to the apostles, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me, Christ said, in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and disciple the nations, baptizing them the nations, that is all the people, all the families of the earth in the Abrahamic covenant, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And I've said before, the reason why I believe that's going to be successful, even though some say, oh, the church is going to end in failure. No, it's not. We're in a battle, but we're going to win because Christ is with us. Jesus gave the commission. He said, he didn't say go out and disciple a few people. He said go out and disciple the nations. We've got a mandate to conquer the world for Christ. Every tongue, tribe, kindred, every race that there is. Nation, by the way, in Greek is ethnos. So we get the word ethnic, it means race. There's no group of people where God doesn't have his elect. And as the word goes forth, they come to saving faith. And the gospel will be triumphant. All of the elect will be saved. We're going to see, the Paul says in Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11, we talked about all these things, that the fullness of the Gentiles is going to be brought into the church. We're going to see that time when the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. The gospel will be triumphant. You say, well, how can you say that? Because you look at all the bad stuff. That, keep reading, beloved. Keep reading the book. Okay? We're going to win. Christ is victorious. We've already won. Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world, disciple the nations. Or go, go and make disciples of the nations. Baptize them. Teach them. What's the last thing Jesus said in Matthew 28? Want to look at the last verse of the Gospel of Matthew? It says, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's not a statement of failure. That's the one who has all authority telling his church, I will be with you. This is going to happen. The nations are going to hear the Gospel. That roar of the lion that goes out, it's much louder than any earthly lion, it's going to be heard, and it's heard through the means that God has appointed, the preaching of his word, that men need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that their sins can be forgiven and they can have eternal life. So the angel told him, you must prophesy again about or to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So we see, so what should we be doing? What's the application? One, we don't need to be afraid. We see evil rise up, and we're seeing plenty of it happen in our generation. We're seeing our nation, it appears like it's in maybe its death throes or it's crumbling or something's wrong at a fundamental level. We see wicked, ungodly people who are completely corrupt in control of major sections of our national and, and state governments. We see unjust laws. You know, we, we live in a society where 65 million babies have been butchered by abortion. And most people aren't too troubled by it because it doesn't affect them. It's cold-blooded, violent, vicious murder, and it needs to be brought to an end. It needs to stop. If someone was running around murdering people who had already been born, and say, oh, well, you know, we're going to work to gradually get you know, this done away with, we'd go, what? And yet, because it's unborn babies, we just go, well, eventually, maybe someday, maybe someday, we need to understand what's going on. Murder is being committed daily in our country under the cover of law. We can't figure out why our country's falling apart. You know, um, I kind of, you almost have to, have to smile at one sense. We've murdered in this country alone about 65 million babies. 
and our border's wide open, and we've got a whole bunch of people flooding in. You know what? You're not going to be able to kill them. You know, you killed off a whole generation of children in your country, and God just sends in a whole bunch of other people, and you go, well, we don't want them. It doesn't matter. They're coming. By the way, I'm not in favor of illegal immigration. I'm just saying it's happened. Okay? And if you don't see that as a judgment of God on our nation, not because the people are horrible or evil or anything like that. They want to live in a free country. I get why they're coming. Okay? They're not all bad. All right? There's a few bad ones in the mix. But for the most part, they just want to live in the United States. And it's like, whoa, the border's open. I can't blame them for that. But innocent is interesting. We murder off a whole generation. God just brings a whole bunch of them through the border. Okay? And it's like, hey, here you go. You won't be able to kill these people. Try to do that to them. They'll, they'll, they'll arm themselves. You know, you're not going to be able to wipe them out. And you just see the, the judgment of God on a wicked nation. You look at our country. The people that are in power are horrible people. We see all but Christ is in control. His feet are on the sea and on the earth. He rules over all things. The nations are being brought under his dominion. All of this, and we're not going to call evil good, but all of this will fall out for the furtherance of the gospel. And we're going to see the word of God triumphant, but that doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. John was told when he saw all this, the, the angel didn't say to him, and now John, don't do anything. It's all going to happen. You don't need to be involved. That's not what he said. You must prophesy. Prophesy means to speak on behalf of God. All right? That means to be a witness and a test, give a testimony. You must prophesy again about many peoples and nations, tongues and kings. You're going to have to preach the word. You're going to have to get the message out there. And that's what this is about. So for us in application, what do we do? We talk to others. Okay? You're not called necessarily to be a missionary. Maybe some of you are. Okay? God will work that out. But you're called to be a witness. When, you, when Christ called you, he called you to be a witness. Your life and your words and your actions, how you behave at work, how you behave in the home, on the job, wherever you are, in school, whatever you're studying, whatever you're doing, you're giving a testimony about what Jesus Christ means to you. Because you're to do all things as unto the Lord. So if you're doing sloppy work, you need to repent. If you're doing sloppy schoolwork, you need to repent. If you're living a sinful life or you've got closet sins you think nobody knows about, God sees them. You need to repent. You need to, and by repentance, I mean you need to turn to Christ, cry out, say, Lord, get this garbage out of my life. Forgive me and cleanse me. And then avoid temptation like the plague. Okay? Uh, the application of this is there's still work to do. We're going to win, but that, there's a battle to be fought. And we'll, later we'll encounter those who come with Christ when, when he comes in glory and they're with him. And those that are with him are called and, and chosen and faithful, it says. And we want to be among that group. So we need to pray, Lord, make us of that group. As your word goes forth and as your sovereignty is proclaimed and the gospel of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, uh, Lord, help us to be part of that group that goes out and takes your word to others and help us to believe it and live according to it in our daily lives to give a testimony for you. May God be pleased to fulfill this, and to him is all the glory. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, bless us now, we pray, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.